This episode of the GabFest contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political GabFest for February 20th, 2020, the two stents edition. I am David Plotz of Atlas Obscure. I have zero stents at the moment. I'm sure I'll get to some. I'm in Washington, D.C. Uh, joining me from New Haven from the campus of Yale University is Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine. Hello, Emily. Not going to ask you how many stents you have. <laughs> I could use some stents. How about that? No. I hope not. No. No stents <laughs> okay. for Emily. I feel like I sort but of need no, life of course. support this week. I'm just having a hard week at work. But yes, no, it, I don't need any stents. It's oh. true. Thank you oh. for your concern, though. Not stents, just just caffeine and yes. good wishes. People yeah. will send good wishes at you. Uh, that no, of course, was from John Dickerson of CBS's 60 Minutes from New York. Hello, John. Hi. I'm not going to ask how many stents you have or how long ago you got them put in. Um, mm, no, I don't have any, but I'm... Anyway, we anyway, don't need to go down that road yet. On today's GabFest, the extraordinary debate that livened up the Democratic primary. What is going on? And is Bernie Sanders about to run away with it? And is Michael Bloomberg donezo already? Then the president's obscene pardons of rich white people and his general efforts to warp American justice. Then we are joined by the authors of Very Stable Genius to discuss their alarming book about the Trump presidency. Plus, of course, we'll have cocktail chatter. Last night, what a debate. Man, the debates earlier in this Democratic presidential campaign have been kind of bleh. Last night had it all. It had – it was – Fantastic. Can I just say that your description of them as wan is still one that mm. really just put the mm. finger right on it? Um, you just wanted to fight the finger, with man, each people, other. But it was great. It was like <laughs> finally, okay. And and you know what? I think, John, maybe you tweeted this. There's this idea that, oh, if you have these contentious debates, it endangers you for the general election. No, it has nothing to do with it. Have the great debates. Fight it out. Like really go after each other. The General election will take care of itself. It doesn't matter. That has nothing to do with it. You just want people to get fired up and enthusiastic. And my goodness, man, Klobuchar going after Mayor Pete, Mayor Pete going after Bernie Sanders, everybody going after Bloomberg, Elizabeth Warren killing, I mean, just committing homicide after homicide on the debate stage. It was it was great. Did you guys get a chance to watch it? I hope you got a chance to watch it because it was it really was it was worth it. I did watch part of it. I agreed that it was spicy. I definitely watched it. So let's talk. Let's start with Michael Bloomberg. My dear Michael Bloomberg showed up at the debate. Probably a mistake for him to show up. He certainly got his head handed to him. Um, he has spent $400 million in a few months. His ads are everywhere. He's not even contesting Nevada. And Emily, uh, Elizabeth Warren, among others, just really hammered him, hammered the hell out of him. And he seemed unprepared. Right. That was what was surprising was that all the analysis before the debate said Michael Bloomberg, kind of thin skin, not used to being challenged, for sure going to face questions about his record on stop and frisk as mayor of New York, probably will face questions about all the nondisclosure agreements that women who worked for his company have signed. That was what happened. He seemed flummoxed and insulted that he was being um, asked to be accountable for both of those actions, which are important to his record. I mean, did you guys think it was sort of political malpractice that he just didn't have like a polished answer at the ready that he'd practiced? Well, I, I thought what what was, uh, you know, David talked about the carnage and there was plenty of it. It was, um, it was a kind of, both in general, there was a Game of Thrones feeling about to it. And then Elizabeth Warren, I mean, every time you thought, oh, she just has brass knuckles, it turns out, no, she has a baseball bat with a bunch of nails sticking out of it. And, oh, look at this. She's found a way to sharpen a spoon. I mean, she just was pulling out, like, one weapon after another. And it wasn't just Bloomberg, whose Achilles tendon she was sawing through. It was she was delivering blows to everyone. And then then it, she decided to be incredibly generous to Klobuchar, which I think she was right about when they got it to that sort of pop quiz question about who was the president of Mexico. But there was substance underneath this. And to your question, Emily, the substance that she highlighted, I thought— gets to your point about political malpractice. If you have blemishes on your record and you're a newcomer, you there's one play, and the play goes like this. You take the blemish you've been given, you diffuse it quickly, and then show how you've learned from it 
crucial and then drive it to your you know your ultimate point that's the that's the the reason and rationale for your candidacy and there was an, a, an avenue open in stop and frisk for michael bloomberg i mean it is a blemish he can't get rid of that it is it is history but then in his answer he failed the lessons test which then warrants uh, effectively outlined, which is it's not just that this didn't turn out the way you wanted. It's that this was failed in its inception and design and that um, and that the design is immoral. And that's the lesson you should have learned. So he in real time showed that he hadn't read the, learned the lesson. And then she jumped in to highlight that, which is why her her aggressive approach was not just performative, but it also had a substantive element to it. And to your point, Emily, yes, it was it was a awful answer both on stop and frisks and and um ndas and you knew those were coming you could see them miles and miles and miles away i do not understand having watched this debate how elizabeth warren is not the front runner she is she is so good at that at the debate piece of it which is one piece of it she's a really good retail campaigner she is obviously the smartest person running and they're a bunch of smart people she has great personnel choices. She has all the capacity to be an excellent executive. I don't understand it. It doesn't it makes it doesn't track to me at all, except maybe sexism. It 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 really she is so incredibly good at the things you think you need to be good at to be elected and yet it, it isn't getting her anywhere. Well, has she does shown it matter that, that side she, of her in the yeah. debates though before? Yeah. I don't think she has. I don't. Maybe she hasn't shown it nearly as much. No, maybe maybe so. I mean, I also thought she was excellent, David. I wonder what will happen to her poll numbers because sometimes when you go after other candidates aggressively, right, John? Don't you take them down, but also kind of take yourself <laughs> down by making yourself seem like you're the slayer of the dragons, i.e., less likable. Why, Emily, you're talking about the old murder-suicide. Um, yes, where you are – when Gephardt went after Dean in 2004, John Kerry was the beneficiary. And so Gephardt killed Dean and killed himself. I think in this case, the primary target of Warren's ire was Bloomberg. And she can gain collective joy in the the much of the Democratic Party at his um, – at, at embarrassing Bloomberg. The question is whether – a couple of things, I think, um, that are close to what you're saying, Emily, which is one – does she just give a sugar high to people? In other words, if you're not already for Warren, you love to see her take on Bloomberg, but that's a kind of a discreet thing. You don't take the next step, which is, hey, she could be president. And the, the she could be president argument, if you want to make it for Elizabeth Warren, is as dumb and stupid as debates can be and as um, weird as campaigns can be. There is a pressure it puts on a on a candidate that says you're behind. You better do something to make your own weather. You better do something to find a lane for yourself and create a moment that puts you at your best advantage in front of voters. And that's what she did. She seized the moment, which is a crucial thing to do in the presidency. Now, the question is whether people saw that, took it as a sugar high and moved on or said, hey, uh, let me give her another look. The fundraising numbers for her were good overnight. That, again, may just be people who already were predisposed to liking her. So it'll be fascinating to see how this all plays out. The final thing I would say is one of the things that, again, it may not matter with voters, but that she's quite skilled at is in this, in the kind of silly top line debates you have about words like socialism and capitalism, blah, blah, blah. She is very good at taking issues and saying, this is what, this is what we're really debating. This and, and, and so making something more concrete, not just with a story about somebody she met in line, but specifically with why debates about socialism versus capitalism and managed capitalism have a real effect and wealth tax have a real effect in a way that voters understand. And that'll be the crucial test for any general election candidate who wants to take a, a lot of buzzwords that people throw around in Twitter and on, in the press and turn those buzzwords into component parts that people really can latch onto when they're making decisions about their presidents. I want to, John, this is maybe going to end up being a question posed at you. The, I'll give you the question and then I'll have a speech. The question is is going to be, does the debate matter for Bloomberg, actually, given the amount of money he sh seems to be willing to spend and given historically how little debates really seem to make a difference in terms of poll numbers? Um, but I'll frame it by saying, uh, look, everyone knows I'm in the tank for Bloomberg. I think he was a great mayor. I think he's an amazing philanthropist. And I think he's a great business leader. I think he has extraordinary executive capacity proved over a whole lifetime uh, and, uh, you know, has made 
great choices in who he hires to work for him and how he organizes his work, how he accomplishes his work. And I think were he in the White House, he would be a, a, an excellent president. Uh, and also, I think he has single-handedly done as much to change the debate on climate change and, and redress climate change, slow down climate change as any person on the planet. So if you care about that as an existential issue, I think he is he's your person. That said, he obviously had an incredibly bad debate, was ill-prepared, uh, was unable to articulate why his policies were good, was unable to offer a kind of cogent defense of his clearly not great personal behavior when he was running his company or ways that created an atmosphere that made made it uh, that made women in particular who worked for him file complaints and him make settlements with them and I'm not saying that that should disqualify him at all but his his inability to answer it was pretty poor um, that you know but but he we know that he's he's an executive we know that he has the capacity to do the job we know that he has the experience to do the job we know he's he's, he's successful and and gets things done and so should Democrats try to look past the debate, which is a totally artificial format, which doesn't really have anything to do with what you do as the executive of the country. You don't sit around having debates with with seven random people where you're trying to score TV points uh, and, and you know, continue to look at him, look at him through a different lens. Wait, didn't you just say about Elizabeth Warren that her skill at debating showed like that she should be way ahead and what a great president she would be? No. I said that was one piece of it. I, she's clearly very good at that piece of it, and it's delightful. And I said she also has – she's really smart. She's good at the retail politician politics piece of it. She's a great policy person, and she has a history of making great personnel choices too. So it's like all together. She has that. She has a lot of what Bloomberg has without the kind of executive record, but she also has the retail piece in a much stronger way. OK. So I, here's what I came away with about Bloomberg. It's not that he doesn't have good debating skills. It's that he conveyed the impression that he has deeply not reckoned with these problems. Like, I thought that the reason he didn't have a good answer was that he just really hasn't, like, sat down, learned about how terrible stop and frisk was for young African-American and Latino men in New York City, considered the other ways that crime can be reduced that are less harmful, and really, like, had a sort of come-to-Jesus moment, though I know that's not the right uh, term to use for him. And I felt the same way listening to him to talk about, you know, sexual harassment, non-disclosure agreements in his office. The reason that matters to me is that, yes, a competent executive is great, but I don't want someone who's bloodless, like who doesn't learn deep moral lessons, who doesn't have that kind of other dimension of his thinking that you want in the president, which is someone who, like, has really good values and cares about people, not just about making trains run on time. And I was left feeling like, whoa, this guy really still has so much to prove on that front. Fair? Unfair? I mean, obviously you want you want those characteristics. There's a, both a moral reason you want them, which you articulated, and then there's a tactical reason you want them, because he's got to get through a primary in which he's got to show at least some level of understanding, which is what I was saying about Elizabeth Warren highlighting the fact that he didn't have the basic first building block of what would be necessary just from purely tactical, removing all of it, removing it of its moral component, a purely tactical requirement to show that he'd learned something. He didn't even have that, which is the prerequisite for then him making the case, which he then didn't make, which is the one David is making, which is it seems to me that that his argument is uh, I may be a son of a bitch, but I'm your son of a bitch, and I can both take on Trump, and then when I get in office, I'll have all of this uh, experience that I've used both as a successful person in private enterprise, philanthropist, and and at least mayor of a big city, and I'll put that to use for your for your goals. So he's he has to get people to make a kind of devil's bargain with him. He's never going to win. He's never going to be more virtuous than the other candidates. But he has to at least cross a threshold, which he didn't even, I don't think, cross in, in that case. Does it matter? Klobuchar rose after the New Hampshire debate. Early voting is already taking place in Nevada and California, so that some of that is baked in already, although my guess is that the early voting taking place is from highly organized candidates like Sanders. On the other hand, Bloomberg has a lot of money and might be organized in those states, uh, undoubtedly is in California. So will it really matter 
also, you, I guess we should also discount a lot of the grave uh, dancing that's going on with Bloomberg is by people who were predisposed to hate him anyway. So um, he he played a, a tough hand badly, um, and and so people are going to uh, go, going to enjoy that. So I think it's um, he had a shot to introduce himself in this, and he blew it. And if one of the arguments for his campaign is he's got these skills and attributes from the private sector. One of those presumably is when you go into an unfamiliar environment, you learn whatever you need to do to succeed in that environment. And he did not do that. So I want to turn to a couple other candidates, in particular, um, Pete Buttigieg, who interestingly decided that he was going to focus his attacks, not really on Bloomberg, although he threw a few shots in that direction, but on Bernie Sanders. And I think was trying to position this, that that the there's a Bernie Sanders alternative and then there's uh, the moderate alternative and I am the best of the moderate alternatives. I thought he was really, uh, you know, he's so calm and cheery and unflappable in a way that seems very winning to me. But I want John to tell me why that is wrong. Well, I think... He's trying to basically get the not Bernie Lane to himself. He's trying to build his authority on the debate stage, both by weakening those with existing authority, like uh, basically saying Biden's too old. He's from yesterday's man with Klobuchar. He's trying to say you don't have the authority from Washington that you think you do. So diminish everybody else's authority. And then by performatively having an answer for everything, doing probably better than anybody else, although Warren is quite good at it, too, taking an answer quickly defining it in new terms that are most favorable to him and then attacking those terms, which is basically what any successful debater does, and he's quite good at it. In his debate performances, he's building authority for himself because he is, you know, he does have a thin resume. And so I think going after Sanders being the only one to do that, and I'm and and why Elizabeth Elizabeth Warren did make a little little attack on Sanders, which actually is a useful lane for her to take, which is basically that his ideas about revolution are totally unrealistic. She didn't press the case very hard. He has to press the case, A, to be the leader of the anti-Bernie wing, and B, also just because he has to choose, I think, tough assignments for himself to keep elevating his stature, which is implicitly an answer to the question that he's who's, he's too young and too inexperienced. All right, let's let's bring this to a close on Joe Biden, who was there and <laughs> and was not in in no sense shamed himself. He did not he did not uh, spit up over himself or anything like that. But it didn't feel like uh, that he was there to to run away with the race or to stake a claim that that he was going to be the destined anti Bernie candidate. It felt like he was just sitting there in the, in the pack with everybody else and. That does not seem good enough unless his organization is masterful in, in some of these coming up states. I think that's right. I mean, he w- he just wasn't a part of the conversation much. And for somebody who's who's had taken a devastating blow in the first two contests, there were opportunities where he could have um, – Where I mean, he's got to make his central case, which is I have the experience and the, the reflexes of successfully advocating for the values of this party – in my bones. That's his argument. And in this particularly perilous moment for him, it didn't come flying uh, through the television screen. As you quite rightly point out, unless he's got an amazing organization in these states, he just seems to be not in the conversation. And if you're, if one of the things that was propelling you, I mean, one of the things that's at issue with his drop is that his sense of inevitability has been punctured. So if that goes away, what's the, what's the rationale for his candidacy? And the only way to rebuild inevitability is to look big, bad, and inevitable. And I don't think he did that on the debate stage. Big, bad, and inevitable is my WWE. (laughs) (laughs) Bet you didn't know that. All right. Well, we will see on Saturday as the Nevada caucuses wrap up and we get closer to Super Tuesday. Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the GabFest and other Slate podcasts. And today on our bonus segment... We're going to design the perfect news source. You are overwhelmed with news, overwhelmed with information, overwhelmed with Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. And we're going to simplify it. We're going to tell you 
what the perfect news source should be, although it won't exist, so maybe that won't even help you, but it'll, it'll allow you to imagine a world with a perfect news source. Go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a member today. This episode of the GabFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins, and even better with unlimited storage and an easy to use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. As we are recording the show, Judge Jackson is sentencing Roger Stone in a Washington courtroom. The Roger Stone case, of course, has captured the imagination because of the enormous uh, upset in the Department of Justice over some perceived interference in that case by Bill Barr, potentially by the president. What is clear is that the president continues to upend the fair administration of justice in ways that are disturbing, unpleasant, horrible for the country. He this week issued a series of pardons and commutations that are baffling and in a way tragic, given what the power of commutation can be used for. Uh, he relieved the sentences or lifted the convictions of people like Michael Milken, uh, Bernie Carrick, the former New York City police commissioner, Eddie DeBartolo Jr., the former owner of the San Francisco 49ers. He commuted Rod Blagojevich, the governor of Illinois, who tried to sell a Senate seat. He commuted his sentence. Um, he commuted the sentence of a Jack Abramoff crony. He uh, seems to have given a break to somebody who gave a huge amount of money to Trump-associated PACs and organizations in recent months, or his family did. A lot of these people who got pardons were people who went on Fox News or were associated with Fox News uh, characters and and used that platform to get the president's attention. So, Emily, what do you make of the pardons and the general interference in the process of, of fair justice that the president's engaged in? So I think Trump is determined to show that he is at the top of the Justice Department. He is the chief of American federal law enforcement. He has been repeating that clearly. He wants to feel like that's his role. And I think these pardons play right into that. They don't cause a constitutional crisis or a direct conflict with um, Barr or anyone else at the Department of Justice because the president has this pretty unlimited – not unlimited, but um, very wide discretion over his pardoning power. And so he picked a bunch of people who his friends had been whispering in his ear about. I mean it's just such a great example of executive largesse like – Someone somebody else likes has been in jail and so then they go on this list and it doesn't matter that there's been in the past this incredibly ornate, intricate, way, way too encumbered process for applying for a federal pardon. Like if Trump is sympathetic to you, out you go. And, you know, the cast of characters is a kind of like who 
a privilege list, a kind of motley crew of corruption, at least in terms of people like Rod Blagojevich. And it doesn't matter to Trump because he's just like inserting himself. And I think he figures, and he may well be right, that whatever the political disadvantages are, they'll be long forgotten by the time November 2020 rolls around. So that's how I read all of this. And I think there is a link to the Roger Stone trial. But um, John, what's your thoughts about the pardons? I mean, I have I have two thoughts. The first is that the president is um, we know is kind of expert at using the kerfuffle to his ends. So he does things to bait the press or to his critics, and he does it for a reason, which is that in the kerfuffle, some benefit happens. So what do I mean by this? So when he says that his the economy is the strongest it's ever been, he is hoping that somebody will fact check him and say, no, it's not. It's not the strongest ever. And what he's done is he's doubled the amount of time being spent talking about how good the economy is. He doesn't care that people that four people somewhere might think, oh, he wasn't keeping his facts straight about the economy. He's just happy to have the extra conversation, the kerfuffle over the fact check to and to lift up the fact that the economy is good. And that's true millions and millions and millions of different times that he blows through fact checks in order to to have the conversation continue on the topic he wants to. So what is the benefit of the kerfuffle here? I don't know. The second thing is, uh, the other thing on my mind is, for the president, clearly his his interest and view is that the normal, the norms of Washington, the traditions are an impediment to what he wants. So the question is, do you break those norms quietly, you know, or slowly without people noticing? Or is it important to have a public back and forth the way he did with with Attorney General Barr this week in which he destroys the norm right before people's eyes in real time to show you how basically useless they are? So Barr drew a line in the, st- the sand and said, don't you talk about these judges or these cases? And the And the president leapt over the line repeatedly and instantaneously and just hopped back over and back and forth over it a million different times and nothing happened to it. And so is that the president's strategy, which is to um, not just defy traditions and norms, but actively do it in public to encourage the view, basically, that these things really are toothless and uh, which is even more powerful than simply ignoring them. And they're toothless, of course, going back to the theme of the decade of the century, because the teeth that could could bite into him, which are legislative teeth, will not bite because the Congress and the, the Senate uh, in particular refuses to act in any way to constrain him and to enforce its rights and privileges and to, to tell him that he can't do these things, which are against norms and against, uh, against practice and against the law even. And so if if the president believes that he can do these things and and there is no mechanism to stop him because the legislature won't act, then he will continue to do them. There was a very good piece, and I've now forgotten where. I think it was in the Post or the Times, pointing out that Trump is pardoning people. Of course, they're his cronies in many cases, and they're people who, who are Fox News cause celebs. But they're also people who are very much like him in certain ways. So he pardoned Dinesh D'Souza for some campaign finance crimes, the campaign finance crimes, which are in themselves similar to Trump's own campaign finance chicanery. But D'Souza was a birther like Trump. He pardoned Joe Arpaio, the um, Arizona politician who, like Trump, has been an absolute – yes, Sheriff Joe Arpaio, scourge of immigrants. Blagojevich, who got this commutation, is somebody – a politician who used a shady telephone call to try to get favors, political favors done in a way that Trump has been known to use a shady phone call to get political favors done. He's pardoned now uh, three old white billionaires for various kinds of corruption. So so he he's um, I'm sure he's trying to make a larger point, but he's also clearly uh, clearing his own name as he does this. He's, he's wiping the slate clean because these are people who are people like himself. That's one point. The second point I want to make is what an incredible, sad, lost opportunity. There's so the, – if I were the president, I would use this power – if I were the president and I were a president like Trump who has a, appalling ratings with poor people, with African-Americans, with, uh, with Hispanic-Americans, with people from generally disadvantaged people, man, I would use this – I would use this uh, 
power of commutation and pardon generously and vigorously in the way that he he got so much cred for pardoning that woman who Kim Kardashian West had brought to his attention. He could just just do do some of those and and bask in the attention and bask in the in the the favor that that would do. But instead, he pardons a bunch of like old white guys who are corrupt like him. I'm I don't what I'm a waste. Sure th- I'm not sure that's not the second beat here. You think he'll do that? So, so yeah. So I think he already did this because the Alice Johnson pardon. Um, she's the African American woman who was serving a life sentence who Kim Kardashian asked Trump to pardon. She was a subject of his Super Bowl ad, and you know, like different Amer- African American politicians and figures were like, "Wait a second, you're trying to, you know." con people into thinking that, like, you really care about this community. So I feel like he's operating on all cylinders already. Um, In the Roger Stone instance, I don't think there's a political benefit I can see um, for Trump's going on and on about Stone. But one does wonder why he is just so adamant about Stone not going to jail. Is it because he knows that Stone, if he ever did talk, could um, really cause a lot of trouble? And is it because he is hoping not to have to use his pardon power, but also lining up the base to get behind um, that next step? Good questions. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. We will find out or not. I mean, I'm struck by how this pardon power, again, just shows how um, Trump can be doing different kinds of things <laughs> in different times and the inconsistencies don't seem to really um, stick to him. And and we're all just sort of left like following um, the news and, and insisting on these norms that – mostly work, but, you know, might have had some problems with them. I mean, David, I think you're absolutely right. Like, the president could use his or her pardon power to such a greater degree than they actually do. And so that makes you think like, okay, well, opening the door to pardons has some benefit to it, even if it seems to be in the most sort of um, cynical, undeserved way. And maybe John's right. Like, there'll be a group of pardons to come. There's just this sense constantly of like this drama we're watching unfold that doesn't totally make sense, but has um, these new like entertaining figures kind of walking onto the stage for a minute. Can I just jump on very quickly and say what's at heart here, right? Emily, correct me if I'm wrong. What we're talking about here with respect to pardons is the president of the United States using his office for ways that are personally aggrandizing either directly or indirectly. But it's essentially misusing the office, which is the thing that he was supposed to be chastened about after impeachment. It's not likely that a lot of people are putting as the first reason he's doing this the fact that he thinks that there are inequities and imbalances in the in the criminal justice system. Right. I mean, he's just refusing to color in the lines, right? And other presidents, when they have had these kind of brushes with impeachment and lots of um, criticism, they retreat to this like very sober place of trying to stay as far as away as possible from anyone who smacks of corruption. Like, oh, Roger Stone, you know, he used to be my friend, but now, you know, he like there's some retribution due here and I would never have anything to do with trying to help someone like that because I'm very different from that person and distancing myself from them. And with Trump, it's just totally the opposite. One of the great divides in culture is between comedy and horror. What seems funny under some circumstances can be pure nightmare under others. And I think just look at clowns, clowns, which are stand for humor and then can so easily be transmogrified into into horror. And I feel that way about our guest's new book, A Very Stable Genius. Phil Rucker and Carol Lennig have written a huge bestseller about the Trump presidency, a book that I think if you'd heard about it in 2016 and some of the details in it, you would have thought, never, that could not happen, no way. And now it just feels like it's true and horrible. It's report, reporting that has revealed yet again, the Trump presidency and its sick, narcissistic cruelty. So welcome to the GabFest. Um, Carol, start with you. What of all the tales that you guys have told in this book and the amazing reporting in this book, what do you think has struck most with readers? What story in particular? 
I think that the piece that has made people the most upset and distraught is the moment where the president is dressing down his generals and his military officers, uh, many of whom have give, have offered to give their lives and have literally given the lives of their children uh, to protect the country. And that moment in July 2017, when three of his senior advisors, his Secretary of Defense, his Secretary of State, and his National Economic Advisor bring him into a sacred space in the Pentagon to try to educate him a little bit about what does keep America safe, because he doesn't seem to understand that. And his recoil at their schoolhouse rock um, turns into a bellowing fest where he calls them dopes and babies um, and tells them he wouldn't have gone to war with them. Perhaps the worst curse word they could ever hear. That has really resonated with readers in part because um, many people in America have a military in their own family and found that upsetting. You know, in some ways, this book is confirming an impression that's been building about Trump since selection. Um, and it falls in the wake of other books that um, are pretty shocking in their kind of inside details. And I wonder, you know, having thought so much about this, what insight you bring, like what, where you landed in terms of how you think about um, not Trump's character so much as the kind of administration he runs, um, the kind of president he would be if um, the country reelects him. Yeah, so there have been, uh, you're right, there have been so many books about the Trump presidency so far. And I feel like Carol and I were lucky because we had three almost three full years of the presidency to consider when writing this narrative. And because of that time uh, and the depth of the reporting, we could find patterns that weren't immediately clear in the early months of the presidency. For example, uh, we find that the North Star for Trump is the perpetuation of his own power and and self-image and survival from day to day, crisis to crisis. And we've seen, we saw rather, after the end of the Russia investigation, the Mueller investigation, the president got off without any sort of legal consequences for his actions, his, you know, documented attempts of obstructing justice, and then became more emboldened and more empowered and and more unrestrained, if it were. We saw him get rid of the adults in the room, the Rex Tillersons, the Jim Mattises, uh, the H.R. McMasters, the John Kellys, and replace them with the team of enablers, uh, a Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, who allowed for Rudy Giuliani to do this shadow diplomacy with Ukraine, a Chief of Staff, Mick Mulvaney, acting Chief of Staff, by the way, uh, who enabled the delay of the military aid for Ukraine, and, and the president got into more and more trouble there. And so these patterns emerged uh, over the three years, and, and with the benefit of time, we can see more of it. Um, Carol and Phil, when when you presented going back to that to the story about um, uh, being at the Pentagon, so there are two possible responses from defenders of the president's. One is, you know, that's his tough style. You know, that's that's he's a disruptor, and and that's and then there's a second, slightly more precise uh, argument, which is. You know, when presidents come in, there is a there is a kind of accepted wisdom. And, you know, we've been fighting for 18 years in Afghanistan and The Washington Post printed the amazing Afghanistan papers, which show basically administration after administration has lied and deceived the public. And so a new president coming in against that kind of calcified thinking perhaps has to be um, uh, engage in a bellow fest. If people mount those counter arguments against that scene, how do you then say what what would the response be to explain the difference between being uh, well? What would the response be? You know, this scene does have uh, the president challenging uh, very openly and a very bellicose way uh, the Afghanistan war, calling it a loser war, and. I completely, after, you know, experiencing the uh, the Afghan papers, I see exactly why folks would view the president as rightly challenging the wisdom of that many years in what he calls a piece of sand. However, that scene is not just a moment in which he's accusing his generals of being losers for pursuing that war. 
He's also challenging um, their decision to have troops and bases in places that protect us. Um, he's challenging fundamental assumptions uh, that actually have been really beneficial for the country for decades, the NATO alliance, for example. This is a moment in which the president is taking the snow globe of the way we've been running the country's national security apparatus and shakes it in the air and throws it up and throws it on the ground. He isn't just challenging the Afghanistan war. And it is an ad hominem attack as well, right? He's calling mm-hmm. them dopes and babies. He's threatening to fire uh, General Nicholson for being a loser until Dunford and Mattis, um, much more senior folks, the, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the Secretary of Defense, remind him that Nicholson is simply doing exactly what was in the national security plan that the president had authorized when he came into office. He is following the orders um, that he's been given. So it's disruption for disruption's sake as opposed to disruption in the cause of a virtuous end. You know, it, it's one thing to call people names in a room. It's another to come up with your plan. And and the many things that the president attacks that have been proven to safeguard us was just as worrisome as the ad hominem element of the way he went at them. Did you guys in your reporting find any episodes where something could have gone even more darkly, there, something could have gone, taken an even more horrific turn, and somebody stepped in and did stop it. And what, what's a particular episode like that, if you did come across something like that? Well, one thing that theme that came through in our interviews with all of these administration officials who worked with the president is how lucky this president has been. Uh, three years in, there's not been a 9-11. We've not had uh, a terror attack on our country. There's not been a calamitous global event that has required um, his sort of intervention and leadership uh, that we've seen with some previous presidents. And, you know, the people who are concerned about Trump's fitness for office and his decision making are relieved every day uh, that America's not been tested in that way. Surely things could have been worse, but part of it is just the luck of of the situation that that Trump is in right now. What um, you know, it's sort of amazing as political reporters and investigative reporters to be writing a book called A Very Stable Genius about a current president. And I wonder if, you know, obviously your investigative skills and your analysis are on great display in this work. But is it particularly challenging with the presidency that has this much kind of fodder for criticism to be writing something that you're also still covering um, and to feel like you're presenting a factual, truthful picture, but it's also just like incredibly negative? I just wonder if there were other moments in history where it would have been easier to say, well, and also here are these here are these good things happening, um, whether the facts themselves are so imbalanced that that presents a challenge for you. You know, this presidency um, that Phil and I have been covering for the last three plus years is, is unprecedented in every way. And part of the reason we decided to hit the pause button and do this book was because history was literally unfolding in front of our eyes. And as to your smart point, Emily, about um, how negative uh, some of the events may, may feel to many of our readers, we apply the same standards we applied as reporters, which was rigorous vetting of the information, trying to capture what really happened in the room, checking and rechecking and rechecking those events. But another sort of um, central guiding principle for this book and the anecdotes we used was how do they reveal the portrait of Donald J. Trump? A question we kept asking ourselves was what motivates him? Okay, we write about a lot of chaos. We write about how many times have you, as the Washington Post published a story that says chaos yesterday. We wanted to really see what is he like in these rooms and what is pressing his buttons and and what keeps him excited what makes him angry. And those were the scenes we gravitated towards without judgment. In this um, world of chaos, what what keeps people around? I mean, there are obviously lots and lots and lots of people who've, who've been kicked to the curb or who've fled. But um, why does McMulvaney stay? Why does Hope Hicks come back? Hope Hicks is back. She yeah. is. How'd you miss is. that? <laughs> I don't know. It's, too, it's all too depressing. I mean, to, to your good question, John, I think uh, a couple things motivated have motivated these people to stay in the orbit despite uh, – 
in some cases, the abuse they receive from their boss. Uh, one is power. They they want to be a decision maker. They want to be close to the action. They want to be a part of the action. Uh, they see long-term career benefits from serving uh, in the government at a high level. They can go on and give speeches or or be lobbyists or get bigger corporate jobs or, or what have you. And so they're, they're sort of making an investment in their careers by serving a president who they see a lot of fault with. Uh, but the other thing to keep in mind is the people in Trump's close orbit view him as an incredibly kind of magnetic force. Like it's exciting to be around him. Uh, Hope Hicks spent hours of every day at his side uh, when she was working in the White House. And then she left the White House and went to L.A. Uh, to work for the new Fox company uh, under Lachlan Murdoch. And, you know, by all accounts, that's a more boring job. <laughs> it's a corporate job. She's dealing with investors and earnings and and all sorts of uh, corporate issues. You're not with the president of the United States every day putting out brush fires every hour. And so there's an appeal uh, to people who want to be a part of that action to just being there uh, despite all the flaws that Trump may have. I remember once I was hanging out with a very rich and uh, successful person who had had a pub- more public career too, and he was just sitting there bemoaning how boring money is. Like, <laughs> money is boring and power is interesting. So maybe that's part of and it. And Trump is not boring. Right. I mean, give, give him that. He, he makes it exciting. I'm curious um, how much of the regular order of the White House goes on in the Trump administration. So historically, there's always so much made of the, you know, president's daily briefing, you know, the gatekeepers, the everything starts on time, uh, how how uh, meetings are held, the protocol of it. Is any of that still in place or is it all 100 percent gone? (laughs) A lot of that is tossed out the window. I I found it really interesting to go through some records of the president's schedule. As Phil and I were reporting on this, we we were pretty um, fastidious about looking at the actual contemporaneous records. And when you look at the schedule, you can see that the president's day, like Obama's day when he was president, pretty much started like crack of dawn, uh, 6.30, 7, 7.30, this kind of time frame. Come have a presidential daily brief the night before. Obama used to read it on his on his iPad and and then have a briefer come in and discuss things with him. As the days went on of the of President Trump's presidency after inauguration, those hours kept shifting back. Executive time kept um, absorbing more of his morning. He stayed up in the residence. They tried at first to impose this idea of him coming in at nine into the Oval Office. That didn't work. Then it was ten. Then it was eleven. So he doesn't um, do much in the morning other than watch a lot of television, some of which he's TiVo'd, um, make a zillion phone calls to friends, especially Fox uh, folks who he's just seen on TV to congratulate them on what he's just heard them say in real time. The order of decision making, that's the morning, how different it is in this White House. The order of decision-making is another way in which this presidency is so unusual. People talk about how there should have been a process for how decisions are made. H.R. McMaster, the national security advisor, was big on process. There'd be these documents provided. The president would look at them. Then he'd be be able to ask questions. There'd be sessions where other people would come in to answer those questions. And then there would be a group of people to suss out the best options. There'd be recommendations. There'd be a final decision. It doesn't happen that way in this White House. People come in, as H.R. As McMaster once said to aides, sideways, crossways, long ways. They're coming in at all different junctures. There is no um, formal and consistent review process. Some people call the president on his cell phone and tell him, I think this is a good idea. As we say in the book, Lou Dobbs used to call him and say, here's what you should do about the border. His DHS secretary at the time, Kirsten Nielsen, was getting on the other end of the phone call this berating from the president. Why aren't you doing what Lou says? And she said, well, some of those things are illegal, and a few of them we're already doing. Um, So lots of differences in this White House. So one of the things that we keep talking about is power and just like the search for power. And I think if I understand correctly that what you've decided really does motivate Trump is this – thirst for more power. And obviously, it's in the service of particular goals, and he's harnessed himself to the Republican Party and also changed its agenda somewhat. So when you imagine a second-term Trump presidency, especially, Phil, given what you were saying about how what we've seen is a kind of 
Trump becoming more unbound, um, getting rid of the people who were constraining him, feeling like he's more confident, knows how to do this job the way he wants to do. I mean, maybe he feels like his mornings are spent really well because he's shoring up his base and getting the advice of the people he trusts the most. So what would you anticipate? Do you think, I guess I'm just sort of, it, it feels sometimes like it couldn't go much further in that direction, and yet it still continues to to move. Yeah, I think you're right. It can still move, and it is still moving. Just look at the the couple of weeks after the impeachment acquittal by the Senate. The president has exercised his power in extraordinary ways to try to protect his friends, to punish his foes, uh, to root out perceived enemies from the the bureaucracy and the national security apparatus. Uh, His intervention, at least publicly on Twitter, uh, to support a lighter sentence recommendation for Roger Stone, a a longtime friend and former campaign advisor. And then uh, just this week, he announced that he was going to appoint as the acting director of national intelligence, one of the most important jobs in the government, the person who runs uh, all of the intelligence agencies and funnels the nation's secrets to the commander in chief. Uh, He's appointing Rick Grinnell, uh, the ambassador to Germany, but more notably, a fierce loyalist uh, to the president and to his family and a a friend of Donald Trump Jr.'s. And and yes, a a Twitter troll. Uh, At times, he's going to be the new acting DNI. So uh, Trump is looking for ways to uh, perpetuate his power to expand uh, the reach of, of loyalty to him personally within the government. And I assume if, if he gets reelected that a second term will look very much like uh, the last few weeks have. And Grinnell's going to stay, stay being ambassador to Germany, right? I, I saw that. I, I, I don't know if that's true, but um, I'm, I'm not sure about that. It seems a, like two difficult jobs to do at once. But. Well, exactly. And the <laughs> DNI was created after 9-11 because of the, the you know, catastrophic uh, lack of connecting the dots. I mean, this is, you know, this was a job created for our modern terrorist moment. So it's not something you can kind of load share. But um, anyway, is did either of you find instances in which since there is no process and there's all kinds of reasons that's a disaster – uh, was there was there any efficiency or any way in which people basically who the president didn't care about what they were up to, they had certain freedoms to move because unlike other White Houses where everything is vetted 58 times and the president has to weigh in, that because this president is disinterested in most of the operations of government, that there were any um, – that it's actually operating in, an, in a more efficient manner in any possible way? Well, certainly with the president not – keeping tabs and the White House not keeping very good tabs on other agencies, there have been a lot of ways in which uh, secretaries and and subsecretaries and principal deputies have been able to push things through rather quickly. Um, But that isn't the focus of our book. Uh, There have been many uh, instances reported in the Washington Post, at the EPA, at Interior, at State, under Pompeo, in which things have been moving with some alacrity in a way that wouldn't that would get probably more review. You've probably also noticed that at EPA particularly, there's the idea that the public gets to um, have a comment period on certain <laughs> decisions is kind of tossed by the wayside. So in addition to the president not keeping tabs on it, the public's um, previous role in being able to keep tabs on it is reduced as well. So is it possible to because you guys have have put your finger on his personal power about which he tends and cares a great deal and makes all of these very focused moves to to accumulate and, and protect and grow. Um, in the past, presidents have tried to move things in from cabinet agencies inside the White House to accumulate power. In his presidency, it looks like he hasn't chosen to do any of that because he doesn't see it as a particularly helpful to his main project, which is the accumulation of his personal and specially designed view of power. Is that a is that a way to think about it? I think you see right in front of your face every day what Donald Trump considers important in the hinterlands of his agencies. The wall, um, uh, making sure people understand that he is going to build it one way or another. And so the Department of Homeland Security, as you rightly point out, John, which w- was a uh, part of the apparatus created after 9-11 to protect us from a future terrorist attack, 
the folks that are in, engaged in protecting us from from terror plots are almost not on his radar at all. The DHS has become the wall agency. It's the only thing he's really focused on in that department, so much so that the department um, is now willing to consider, uh, although they're not excited about it, giving up the Secret Service, which used to be part of their agency, but, but feels like a redheaded stepchild there and wants to move out and back to Treasury. A very stable genius from Phil Rucker and Carol Ennig. It's a bestseller. It's amazing. And it's filled with details that will make your jaw drop and your hair fall out, your redheaded stepchild's hair fall out, possibly. Thank you guys for coming in. Thanks, Thank David. Thank you so much. Okay, let's go to cocktail chatter. When you are finished reading your copy of A Very Stable Genius and you're like, man, I need a drink. Mm. I want to talk about something else. John Dickerson, what are you going to be chattering about? My chatter is about a comment, a, a burst of candor from Mick Mulvaney, the acting chief of staff of the White House, in which he said, my party is very interested in deficits when there is a Democrat in the White House. The worst thing in the whole world is deficits when Barack Obama was the president. Then Donald Trump became president, and we're a lot less interested. So this is Mick Mulvaney saying something out loud that's demonstrably true, um, and extraordinarily true. Deficits have, have mushroomed under... Donald Trump, but you wouldn't expect the chief of staff of the White House of the current sitting president um, to say to say it out loud. And it was particularly striking to me because I'm rereading The Long Game, which is Mitch McConnell's book about the Senate and his career. And in it, the central focus of the Obama years is how profligate and um, uh, the Obama administration is, how awful it is that the deficit is going up and how that tells you something deeply uh, flawed about the president. So seeing that, this statement and that, and then reading that at the same time, and the fact that he pays no heed to whatever, a thing that used to be one of the driving and has been for the last, you know, 40, 50 years of the Republican Party was, um, I thought, nicely encapsulated in Mulvaney's uh, quote there. It's really And John, I would point out that Mick Mulvaney is not merely the acting chief of staff. He's also the director of the Office of Management and Budget. His job is budgets and budget deficits. Yes, although in the exciting way that the Trump administration works, he is both the acting of OMB, but then there is, I mean, sorry, he is the director of OMB, but then there is also an acting director, Russ Vaught, I think his name is, of OMB. So he's acting, Mulvaney's acting at chief of staff, but an actual director of a thing that he doesn't run, which is run, by an acting director. <laughs> On paper, though, it would appear that he might have some authority to do something about attending to budget deficits if he so chose. Right. Emily, what is your chatter? I was working on a piece last week about labor law, which I uh, had took a crash course in. That was what it felt like. And I read a book along the way called A Collective Bargain by a labor organizer named Jane McAlevey. And she's really arguing that, first of all, it just is a book with some really interesting history and great examples of her own organizing. Um, she just sounds like she's it's just like <laughs> very committed and determined and gets the job done. And she's basically saying, look, um, the conditions for labor right now in America are terrible. The reason that, um, you know, union membership is declining is partly because of these structural flaws in the way our labor law is set up. But her response is to basically say, like, get over it and let's look at the places where unions are still able to win. She's particularly interested in teacher strikes and in the healthcare sector. Um, and it's just a really bracing account that, you know, after reading a lot about how terrible things are for unions, it was interesting and a relief to read about someone who feels like you can still succeed and who was providing a kind of map for doing that. So um, Jane McAlevey, A Collective Bargain. My chatter is just a photo that I saw on Twitter. It was tweeted by Marina Amaral, who I think I've chattered about before. She is a brilliant artist. She's a Brazilian who colors photos. So she looks at old photos, usually portraits of people taken in early 20th century or 19th century, and colors them, these black and white photos, so that they are fully rich, realized color photos. And they she brings human beings to life in this just absolutely astonishing way with her work. That has nothing to do with her 
tweet, she tweeted a photo from uh, the opening of King Tut's tomb in 1923. So this week in 1923, Howard Carter, the archaeologist, the Egyptologist, opened King Tut's tomb. And it's a simply a photo of the seal on the tomb, which is wrapped in a hemp rope with a very elaborate and quite beautiful knot. And the knot is sealed at the end. And you can see that it's unbroken. And the, the tweet is just that here is this thing that has been untouched for 3,245 years. And so the photo is really, it's not a great photo or anything. It's just a, the act of imagination to think about something which has literally been preserved in this perfect state for most of recorded human history. And then, of course, that opened and disturbed by by Howard Carter bringing a mummy's curse upon all of us. But uh, it's it's a great photo. Listeners, you too have sent us excellent chatters this week, as in all weeks, and you have tweeted them to us at at SlateGabFest or, or sent them in other ways, but mostly tweeted them to us at at SlateGabFest. And this week's chatter comes from Andrea, who imagination was captured by a story in the Independent, I think the Irish Independent, about a ship that ran aground. <laughs> You've heard about this, John? Yeah, it's amazing, the ghost ship. The ghost ship, a ghost ship that ran aground. There's been a series of very violent storms in the uh, in Ireland and the UK the last couple of weeks, and a ship was tossed onto the rocks and on the coast of Cork County. And it's a huge ship, and it's a ghost ship. And it turns out, uh, and they're trying to prevent people from clambering on the rocks to explore it because it's very dangerous and and goodness gracious, who knows what could happen to you? But it's a ship that had had been abandoned in the middle of the ocean three or four years ago uh the it had engine trouble the crew couldn't fix it the crew was you know worried they were going to be in fact the crew was stranded for three weeks without food and water at sea and finally were rescued and they were rescued and then the ship was just left and the ship has been floating around the ocean and and now has ended up tossed up on the irish coast so it's quite vivid and and magical story and there are not a few ships that just are floating around that end up abandoned, the huge ships that just vanish every year. And and I guess some of them wash aground in Ireland. So check that out. If you enjoy the GabFest, please subscribe to the GabFest on this app that you're listening to us on or wherever you listen to us. I'm sure there's a way to subscribe. Please subscribe to us. It helps us. And you will get new episodes the second they are published. That is our show for today. The GabFest is produced by Jocelyn Frank, our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Ryan McAvoy helped out Emily in New Haven. Melissa Kaplan helped out me in D.C. Who is with you, John? Dustin Gervais. Dustin Gervais is with John in New York. You should follow us on Twitter at SlateGabFest. Tweet chatter to us there. Gabriel Roth is the editorial director of Slate Podcast. June Thomas is the managing producer of Slate Podcast. And Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson and I are the hosts of the Slate GabFest. And we will be back with you next week. Thanks for listening. Hello, Slate Plus. What's up? How are you? Good to see you. Nice to see you again. We are going to talk about a John Dickerson proposed idea. John, frame it up for us. My idea was uh, if you could design your perfect news, either outlet or diet, um, how would you do it? If, I guess I've I thought of it from the production end. So you've been given all the money in the world. Maybe not that. Anyway, you've been given money to design your news um, organ. What do, you, what do you do? What's your mix? How do you deliver it? Um, and what's your purpose? David. It's funny. It's For me, it's really... Uh... I guess I don't feel that I'm suffering from an absence of it. I find that the New York Times, the New York Times and the Washington Post meet 97% of my news needs on a daily basis. And, and the New York Times, I was going to say it's mostly the New York Times, Emily. The New York Times meets <laughs> Even probably 80% on. on its own. And the bits that aren't met are mostly things around around British soccer, which I pick up from <laughs> The Guardian and ESPN. So I I guess I don't live in a world of dissatisfaction that my I get I happen to live in a city, Washington, where there's 
a strong local newspaper. And so the, the Post is both a great national newspaper and it's a, an okay local newspaper. The new the newspaper is the even not the paper itself, but the the kind of the collective project of the newspaper, the way it is gathered and presented online, is the very effective uh, way to collect most of the important news of the day. So, and then I look at Twitter. I look at Twitter, and so I don't I don't think there's a lot that I want to improve. The only thing I would want to improve is that I don't like to watch video. And I do like mm-hmm. to listen to audio. And I, I think what I would like is – and I do like to look at pictures. I would like there to be a curated maybe 10 pictures a day that I could look at that would be that, – that, that, so in the New York Times along with the A1 stories, there would be, there'd be 10 photos that you could just look at which would have really good National Geographic style captions that would almost be news some reason of themselves in themselves and to be able to look at that. And then similarly like a – if I wanted it and probably wouldn't listen to this every day, uh, uh, kind of ca- uh, audio of the world, not, not just a, not just somebody reading, reading the news, but audio that is, um, captured audio, uh, snippets of that condensed five minutes. So you could listen to what happened in the news in five minutes by listening to people, the real voices of human beings, not, not of reporters and pundits, but of the actors and those events. So those are the two things I would add. Are you defining news kind of narrowly to really be about news consumption as opposed to analysis or other kinds of long-form reading or listening or watching you might be doing? GabFest fans, that was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a Slate Plus member today.